0: Hey, welcome. Thanks for joining us as we continue our series on habits. Uh, It's all about these invisible routines that shape our lives. Uh, So I don't know about your family, uh, my family, we've been out of school for a couple of weeks. uh, So how about we warm up with a little math so we don't get too rusty over the summer. Sound good? So here's, here's the word problem. It's a classic problem. And if you know the answer, please don't spoil it for the people sitting next to you. You've got a bat and a ball and together they're worth a dollar and 10 cents. That's how much they cost. Now the bat costs $1 more than the ball. Okay. And you have to figure out how much does the ball cost? Okay, ready? Go. Most of you are just sitting there. Some of you are actually writing... Good for you. But for most of us, you know, unless you've heard this before or you're a genius, you know the answer. It just popped into your head. And the answer is what? Ten cents. Good job if you were courageous enough to say it out loud uh, within earshot of other people. Ten cents. And this was like an easy, intuitive, quick answer. And unfortunately, it was totally wrong. (laughs) Don't believe me? Let's check out the math. Let's let's do it, okay? Uh, So if the ball costs 10 cents and the bat costs a dollar more than the ball, then the bat is not 90 cents, it's a dollar and 10 cents. Or not, uh, sorry, a dollar, it's a dollar and 10 cents, okay? And a dollar and 10 cents plus the 10 cent ball totals not a dollar and 10 cents, but a dollar and 20 cents. You get it now. So, bonus points uh, if you figured out the real answer, which is not 10 cents, but I'm not going to wait for you to figure it out if you haven't already. The real answer is, of course, that the ball was 5 cents because you take a 5 cent ball and you add a bat that's worth a dollar more, which is a dollar and 5 cents, you add those together, that equals a dollar and 10 cents. If you got it right, good job. If you didn't get it right, don't worry about it thousands of university students have failed this test including half of the students who have taken it who go to Princeton and MIT and Harvard so you are in good company Don't feel dumb. Uh, This example comes from Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. And he uses this as an example to point out how often we rely on habits instead of our rational conscious minds when we think we're solving familiar problems. So remember, if you were with us last week, we said that habits are invisible routines that shape our lives. So you saw this seemingly simple math problem and a part of your brain was like, oh, I got this. You don't need to think about it. The answer is 10, and it was all based on patterns from hundreds of seemingly similar problems that your mind has figured out before. Uh, and and you might call this like intuition or a snap judgment or kind of going on autopilot. And we these are habits. And we have thousands of these that we use every week every day whether driving to work or taking care of kids or in a conversation or feeding yourself or whatever but many times our habits our intuitions are wrong they're often wrong but the, and this poses a problem because as Daniel Kahneman says in his book many people are overconfident and therefore prone to place too much faith in their intuitions This can be kind of annoying when it comes to a a silly math problem, but it can be devastating and dangerous when we're talking about the ways we make snap decisions about people about human beings who are maybe different than us and then based not on who they really are but, or, or what they actually do, but out of maybe uh, patterns of fear or hurt or half-truths that we have been told about those people, we make snap judgments that are totally wrong. And this habit of the mind, the Bible calls favoritism, or partiality. And it the Bible says it is completely incompatible with life in Christ. Look with me in uh, James chapter two, uh, verse one. James chapter two, verse one. He says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Must not show favoritism. Now, what this doesn't mean is that we can't have favorites or we shouldn't have favorites. That's not what it means at all. If you go back and look in scripture, uh, you'll, you'll see that we all have our people and that's a good thing. That's a good thing. So I have a, a new friend. Um, he, he's like me. He grew up in Minnesota in the Twin Cities. He grew up loving the Vikings and then he moved to Packer country with the green and gold uh, like me. Now, unlike me, He has a giant purple Vikings flag that he hangs on his porch. He's either stupid or brave, depending on who you ask. Now, he told me the story of uh, last November when the Vikings actually beat the Packers. Now, I'm a Vikings fan, but I can admit that that's very rare and to be celebrated, you know, if you're a Vikings fan. Anyway. Uh, they they beat the Packers. And what he did was just outrageous. He grabbed his giant purple flag and he marched down Main Street and Sun Prairie, waving it for all to see. And he said he's never been honked at more in his life. He's either brave or stupid, depending on who you ask. But it's okay to have your people, uh, to have your favorites. In fact, even God does that. Uh, In Deuteronomy 10, we read that God has, quote, set his affection on the people of Israel and, quote, love them above other nations because he's chosen them to be a people who would learn to reflect his love and generosity and live in proximity to his holiness so that they could become a blessing to all the people of the earth. They were his favorites, not to not to to become an exclusive tribe in and of themselves, but to bring that blessing and that favor and grace of God to all people on earth. And uh, the Song of Solomon, uh, which which is kind of crazy. I don't know if you've read it. Uh, It's like semi-erotic love poetry. Not totally sure sometimes what that's doing in the Bible, but it's beautiful. And there's this lovesick groom who is writing poetry for his fiance. And he's, he's saying things like, you're unique, you're favored, you're special, you're more beautiful than all the other women that I see. There, there's a place, like you should have your people, you should have your party, maybe your group, your family, your tribe, maybe your church, your nation, your political party, uh, your favorite brand, you know your team, uh, those people who you know and they know you, you share this common sense of what 's good and true and beautiful and and this is essential you can 't live without it. Psychologists call it our social identity it's it's the place from which we find our uh, like our place in the of our, the story of the world, but what happens is when our favorite gets turned into something that is sinful and wrong and devastating, which is favoritism. What happens is our party uh, gets turned into partiality because of these habits that we fall into. It's where we have our people, but then we also have our unpeople. Everybody has unpeople. Partialities is when you live as if your group and the people in your group are necessarily righteous and clean and good and honorable and trustworthy just because they're in the group. And, and, and the reverse is also true that everyone in every other group just by virtue of not being in the group is already unclean and unhonorable and unrighteous and untrustworthy. And, and, and this is so interesting. Because we all have our people, we all have our unpeople, but what's so interesting is the heat has gotten turned up. The tension is is so much greater than it's been before, at least in my memory. And I talk to people on the right and on the left, Christians and non-Christians, and everyone is saying, Man, it feels like I can't even have an honest conversation with people who are different than me anymore. You ever feel that? Like if you even bring something up, it's it's about to explode in your face. Let me ask you something who who have you lost this last year? Like and I don't mean like from the virus, you know, or the pandemic, although that that could be your story. but who have you lost to politics? whether the issue is you know, mask or anti-mask or vaccine or anti-vax or uh, the, the polarized elections or some other conspiracy theory or maybe a response to Black Lives Matter or, you know, maybe in a church that has been, you know, too far to the right or too far to the left or not far enough to the right or the left or not loud enough on this issue or that issue. Who have you lost? I've lost people and it grieves me Grieves me. Cultural commentators tell us that that Americans and Christians are more divided than at any time since the Civil War. And we feel this every day. Uh, Political psychologist Howard Levine says that party identification is a, quote, monster that is creating these intense divisions. And this is all fueled by, by this vast apparatus of, of what some people are calling polytainment, which is this lethal mix of politics and journalism and entertainment. And I believe what we're witnessing right now is the rise of a new secular religion in which God is replaced with political ideologies, and evangelism has been replaced with holy wars. We're divided. there's tension, there's anxiety, there's fear. And when we blindly follow these habits of favoritism and partiality, what we're doing is we're fostering a world not of love, but of fear. And love is incompatible with fear. And we foster a world not of mercy and understanding and grace and civility, but of judgment and condemnation and tribalism. And part of becoming a new humanity in Christ is learning to recognize unpeople. And stopping the habit loop of favoritism and partiality, that's and starting instead new habits of mercy. So how do we do that? How do we recognize unpeople? Well, we stop habits of favoritism and partiality, and we start habits of mercy. So James, starting in verse two of chapter two, is going to start showing us what these habits of favoritism and partiality look like, so we can stop them. So uh, go ahead and. Check this out with me, starting in verse two. Suppose a man comes into your meeting, talking about a church gathering, wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man comes in in filthy old clothes. And if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but to the poor man, you stand there or you sit, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated against you? among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, hear the urgency and the love that James has in his voice. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? So he, what James is saying here is that favoritism and partiality, they're not merely about our preference. They're not just about, well, I like these kinds of people. I don't like those kinds of people. No, no. no. It, that's not what it's about. It's, it's about Like favoritism and partiality, if you go all the way through scripture, which I did and looked up at every occurrence of these two words in scripture, it is almost always about justice. It's almost always uh, about people getting their due. Uh, Like Leviticus uh, 19.15 says, do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor. Interesting that you can show partiality to the poor there. Or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. So this is about the decisions that we make. It's about the way we categorize people and the way we treat them and the way we dole out uh, justice. (laughs) So the first habit of favoritism and partiality that we have to stop is, we have to stop dishonoring unpeople. We have to stop dishonoring unpeople. So in this scenario that James is painting, there's this poor man and this rich man, and they come to a meeting. They they come to a church, and it could have been a, like a worship gathering, you know, that we're used to, and it could be kind of this scenario of like, you know, the rich guy pours up, uh, pulls up in his imported car, and he walks in with his Yeezys and his designer clothes, and and the ushers are like, wow, and they swoon and fawn over him, and and they like bring him to like the nicest spot in the house, right underneath the air conditioner, and they give him the, you know the coffee or whatever. In, in the meantime, they they tell the the poor guy who comes in in filthy clothes or or revolting and kind of smelly and homeless maybe, and they say you go sit over there, you know. It, it could be something like that, but I think it's more likely, and a lot of people who are smarter than me agree with me, that this is probably more like a congregational meeting, where a decision is being put to vote. So, uh, you know, it's it kind of like a board meeting. So like something has come up. There's there's an injustice or this complaint arises. And what are we going to do about it? So in Acts chapter uh, six, there's a, a story of like the early church is distributing food to the poor. And there are Jewish poor, which is kind of the majority of the church. And then the minority are these Greek poor. And there are these Greek widows. So these are women who speak Greek and they live Greek. and And they're kind of the minority. They're this This little group within the larger group, the church, and they they like speak up. They're like we're getting overlooked at the food distribution, and so what the leaders do is they call a meeting. They bring the leaders together. They hear from both sides. They weigh their options. They come up with a plan and they move forward. And what we have is they basically, they commission a bunch of Greek leaders to then be over the food distribution so that it's fair and it's equitable and everybody gets their due, it's beautiful. And and things like this, opportunities like this happen in our churches all the time. You know, uh, maybe you've been in like a small group where someone said something offensive. And you you can't sweep it under the rug. You know, they didn't think it was offensive, but someone else in the group was like, whoa, that hurts, you know? You gotta t- deal with it. You gotta talk it through in, in a, with civility and with grace. Or maybe like there's, you're an African-American man and you're in a men's group. And, you know, you wanna be honest and you wanna be open and vulnerable about, you know, Black Lives Matter and all this happened in this last week, but you're afraid that if you speak up, you're gonna be maybe, um, you know, uh, uh, gas or, or minimized or, or, you know, people are going to get defensive or hurt or misunderstanding, you know, like this stuff happens all the time. I was just talking to a small group leader who said, we can't get our small group together because half of us are vaxxed. Half of us aren't vaccinated and no one can agree on what's right. So we got to, there are these moments where we have to meet and bring them together. And what James is saying is, I think when you're coming together in this kind of meeting, you are dishonoring the poor. You're saying here, sit at my feet. We're relegating them to stand over there in the corner. Do you know what that's like? So there's this, um, there's this example, like when I was eight years old, um, I remember we went to a basketball tournament. Uh, we lived in Minnesota And um, my uncle was playing basketball and the the tournament was way out in the middle of nowhere, the small town. And it was middle of winter, freezing cold. It was late at night. And I was asleep in our car driving home when my dad, who was driving, hit black ice. And we spun around and we went into a ditch. I woke up, obviously. Everybody was Okay you know, but the car was stuck. And so these are the days before cell phones, hard to even imagine that. And my dad had to get out of the car and march down the highway to try to find some help. And so in the meantime, we were in this car and it was was cold outside, but we had plenty of gas and, you know, the, the heat was on. And so I fell back asleep. But then I remember waking up because my feet were cold. It's the weirdest thing. They were so cold. I remember telling my mom, who was, you know, she was stressed out, so she didn't respond the best. She's a great mom, love her to death, so kind, but in that moment, just a, just a lot of stress and anxiety and she didn't respond the best. She kind of told me to, you know, go back to sleep and but and I tried, but I, they kept getting colder and colder until finally they were like throbbing in pain. And I was crying and like, "Mom, my feet are cold." And in frustration, she turned around and turned the dome light on. And she saw that my feet were submerged in like a foot and a half of freezing cold water. Because what had happened is when we went into the ditch, we landed right in the middle of a frozen creek. Of course, she felt terrible. But that's what it feels like. Like, it, that's what it feels like when, when you're being dishonored. It feels like you have to argue just to, get your, just to make a case and get people to listen to you. And when the habit of partiality takes over, what happens is unpeople, unwanted, unnecessary people, they tend to get overlooked. They tend to get overlooked. Their opinions are glossed over. Their voice is being minimized. They're not given the same platform. And scripture universally condemns this. Universally condemns this. In Deuteronomy 7, warns Israel about uh, the dangers of becoming this majority that silences or interrupts or censors people when they have something to say about injustice. Malachi 2 talks about how sometimes, you know, uh, people maybe in a position of authority, uh, or, or in majority, uh, can sometimes raise the expectations for people in low positions who they have to work twice as hard as them just to get to the starting line. They raise the expectations so high and they put so much red tape in place that um, it's just impossible to meet the standard. Deuteronomy 16 warns God's people of you know twisting or mi- misrepresenting people, you know turning their arguments into these cartoonish straw men that can easily be knocked down. And, and this is a lesson for those of us maybe in leadership. You know, parents, like are you are you listening? Parents, are you listening to your kids? Managers, are you listening to the people under your charge? Husbands, are you listening to your wives? You know, in the military, are you listening to people? In in law enforcement, are you listening to the people that you're pulling over? You know? Are we Listening, like we're in a church that is white majority, white folks, are we really listening to the the people of color in our church who are saying, my feet are cold. My feet are cold. We we must not dishonor the people that God honors. That's the point. In verse five uh, of what we just read, James said that God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith and to become inheritors of his kingdom, which is to say that all of his wealth, all of his glory, all of the beauty of heaven has been made available to to people that the rest of the world treats as unpeople. Jesus quotes his big brother, Jesus, who's saying that, like, blessed are you, happy are you when you're poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And this, of course, doesn't mean that if you're poor, you know, or you're a minority, that you have your ticket to heaven stamped. That's not what he's saying at all. But he's saying that God loves to lavish his grace. He delights to to give good gifts to people who are unpeople. Who are underrepresented, under resourced, who are discarded and slandered and canceled. The kingdom of God is for unpeople. And we have to see them for who they really are. And James uses this unusual title for Jesus in verse 1. It doesn't occur anywhere else in the Bible. Uh, James calls his big brother our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is it's. It's this Lord of glory who has made all people in his glorious image and he's also invited all people to respond to his grace on the cross to become fully glorious themselves at the end of the age. That's our destiny as followers of Christ. And recognizing Unpeople, whoever your unpeople are, recognizing them starts with recognizing the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That that He has made all people, those people, your unpeople, in His image. And that, yes, that image may be shattered and you know may be tainted by sin and by a messed up history. God knows that's my history. But the glory of the image of God can never be taken away. It can never be cast aside. And that glory for those who follow Christ is made perfect and complete, James says, uh, in chapter one. And, and as we follow Christ, uh, we will come to the day where we see every unperson person who follows Jesus who they really are in Christ. C.S. Lewis says it on that day. The most boring, uh, uninteresting people are suddenly going to be people for whom we would be tempted to worship because of how glorious they are. I think that's a beautiful picture. So, how do we, how do we recognize unpeople? Well, we've got to stop the habit loops of favoritism and partiality. We've got to stop dishonoring unpeople. We also have to stop over honoring our people. We have to stop over honoring our people. So James is saying, if the poor are being dishonored by by being robbed of glory, then the rich are being given too much glory. James says, I don't know if you caught it. You're showing those rich folks special attention. You give them the platform. you, You give more weight to what they say. You give them more time with the microphone. And why do we do this? All sorts of reasons. Sometimes it's because, you know, we want to flatter people that we perceive as people in power. This is, uh, you can read about this in Deuteronomy chapter 1 or Job 32. Sometimes it's that, you know, we want to bribe people and give them what they think they want in order for us to get a return favor. But usually the way we do this or the, the reason we do this is because of fear not of the other people, but it's usually because of fear of what our own people will say about us if we don't toe the line. And that's that's what makes this so difficult is the fear of our own tribe, our own family, our own ethnicity, skin, color, gender. And Exodus 32 warns us about this. It talks about groupthink, which is where there's this pressure to toe the party line. And you know, because if maybe you've been in those, those gatherings or someone speaks up and they get shut down, they get looked at with suspicion. What they bring up gets belittled or glossed over, or laughed at. And often what happens is they get accused of being divisive. Like, man, we're just about unity here and you're dividing us. So common. And this happens so much as we, as we deal with issues of justice over and over again. It's like being nose blind. You know what being nose blind is? So um, we lived in Reno for a while and we moved back to Wisconsin and suddenly we were around farms again. And it was great. And I, like, I would see those barns and I, I would recognize a dairy farm was coming. We'd be cruising along you know, a county road and my kids would be in the car and I would roll down the windows you know, and that smell, that dairy farm smell would waft in. And my kids who have never encountered this before in their lives, they've loved the cheese, but they've never known what it costs. They're like, oh, gross. Dad, roll up the windows. You know, they're just not used to the smell. But then, you know, there are farmers and I know some farmers. They, they drive by a dairy farm and they roll down their window and they take a deep breath. Ah, <sighs> fresh air you know? See, we get used to our smell. We get used to it. And and we can get nose blind. And every tribe, every group, every business, both political parties on the right and on the left, every church, every denomination, every skin color, uh, we all have a smell and we're used to it. And it's comforting to us and it's home to us, but we're nose blind. And that's what partiality does. And favoritism, it, it makes us Sin blind about, the, about our own people. And so we tend to be more lenient with ourselves and others. We tend to gloss over things that are serious offenses. We tend to look at our past and our history and go, oh, that's no big deal. Here, let me explain you know, how we just gotta you know, move on. But others walk in and they go, whoa, this stinks. Wow. And, and I think that's what God is saying here through James Hey Stinky, when's the last time you let someone not from your tribe let you know how you smell? And maybe that's one kind of action step that we can take. You know, where we can stop the habit loop of favoritism by that's blinding us to our sin and cutting off, cutting us off from our brothers and sisters by just asking someone, someone who is not from our group, hey, when you hang out with us, what does it feel like? How do we smell? So we have to stop the habit loops of favoritism and partiality. But but not just that, we've got to start new habits of mercy, new habits of mercy. And James talks about this in verses eight through 13. He says, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. Verse 12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. And get this, this is the most beautiful line in this passage. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So how do we start new habits of mercy? I think there are three things in this section. Number one is we have to move toward the king. We have to move toward the king. Did you notice all this royal kind of language, this kingdom language? See, the the king, Jesus, is the one in whom God's perfect and just and accurate uh, uh, judgment meets his perfect loving compassion and mercy. It's where judgment and mercy meet in Christ at the cross. And what James is saying, if you really want to interrupt the habit loop of favoritism and partiality and condemnation and the fear and the rage, you have to start not by going toward those people, not by moving, that's what the world says. They're just move toward those people and you can't do that. You have to start by moving toward the king, the king of all judgment, the king of all mercy. The royal law here is t- he's talking about the great commandment, which is all throughout the Old Testament and Jesus sums it up as the central, most important principle that all the other laws hang. He says it's a love for God and it's a love for the people for people who are made in God's glorious image. And he says, these are the cornerstones. Uh, These are the core convictions of of life with Jesus. Or another way of saying it is loving God and loving others Is the life the way it was meant to be lived? And this law, he says, is royal. It's not because it's enshrined in a palace in heaven somewhere. The law isn't royal because it's like, you know, uh, in the Bible, he says, the law is royal because it comes from the heart of the king. It's who he is. It's his culture. It describes what he's like. And James is saying, if you keep this law, you are are like in friendship, you're in relationship with Christ and you're experiencing life as it was meant to be lived, free of condemnation, free of tribalism, free of fear and outrage. But if you do not keep the law, you're out. You're out. It's not because God wants to smite you. It's because you've opted out of who he is. Like you you can show, you can live a life without mercy if you want. You can judge people, be critical of people. You can let yourself and your people off the hook and judge other people really harshly. And what's going to happen is you're going to get exactly what you want, which is a life of all judgment and no mercy. When we do that, we make ourselves unpeople to God. And we've all done it. We're all guilty of this. We're all Lawbreakers. It's a a package deal. You break one, you offend the character of God. But the good news is that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet unpeople, Christ moved toward us. He's the king, the king who embodies the royal law. And the good news, James says, is that even though you and I are all unpeople, when we begin to move this toward this law of love. We're moving toward a king who is radically oriented ter- toward mercy. Radically oriented toward mercy. So much so that he was willing to, to face and bear all of our judgment on our behalf. And that's what he did on the cross. And Jesus knows better than any human being on the planet, any human being, what it's like to be an unperson. Because on the cross, he was unwanted. He was unholy. He was unloved so that he could offer us mercy and belonging and love. So we have to start by moving toward the king. And then we have to find mercy for ourselves. To find mercy for ourselves. So here's the thing. You know, you're, you're going to, you're going to maybe on July 4th, be around people that you don't normally see. Maybe some other holiday or family vacation or whatever. You're going to come to church and there's going to be someone that is on the other side of some ideological boundary line for you and your anxiety is going to rise. You're going to be tempted to to walk away, to avoid them. You're going to be filled with fear. (laughs) I am. maybe, Maybe you aren't, but that's what happens to me. And here's the thing about those tense moments. Those moments are almost never about the topic or the division or the ideological line. They're almost always about our identity. Who we are and what they think about me. And here's here's what it means to find mercy for ourselves is that we're, when we're in that moment, we have to remember who we are. Who we really are in Christ, that we're not an unperson that you and I are destined for glory. We're clean, we're forgiven, we are accepted in Christ. And it doesn't mean that we always get everything right, but it does mean that we are already welcomed into the family of God. And it gives us peace and it gives us courage. So we have to remember who we are. We have to find mercy for ourselves. And finally, we have to find mercy for others. We have to find mercy for others. So here's an example of of what I mean, uh, because this comes up in conversation with your people. Uh, So here's this picture of Napoleon. Uh, You know, here he is. He looks awesome, and he's on this white stallion. And this is is a painting uh, by Jacques-Louis David in um, in the early 1800s, and it's called Napoleon Crossing the Alps. And it looks cool, but it's totally inaccurate because that's not what it really was. It was in the middle of winter, He wasn't on a white stallion, he was on a mule. Uh, He was leading uh, thousands of soldiers. They were underfed, it was super risky. Uh, And so there's another painter, his name uh, is uh, Delaroche. And in 1850, he painted a similar painting but it was just a lot more realistic and here he is. He looks way different, doesn't he? See, here's the thing, when we're with our people, we paint portraits of others. And, and the way we depict them, the way we talk about them, really affects how others view them. And, and the same thing is true for us. The way we talk ourselves up, the way we are lenient on ourselves sometimes, the way we excuse ourselves can talk ourselves up. And what we're doing is we're, we're painting the wrong portrait. It's not real. And what we have to do is say, that's not right. That's a habit of moving toward mercy for others, just saying that's not right. So let's, let's pray. Let's pray as we move toward this king of, of mercy. So Lord, we're so grateful that in your perfect and wise judgment and in your compassionate mercy, that you did not uh, leave us as outsiders and as unpeople, but you moved toward us. So Lord, for my friends here today who are gonna be talking to uh, family, friends, neighbors, uh, people in their church, people they work with who are ideological others, I pray that you would meet them in the moment and you would train them up in your habits of mercy. We pray these things in your name, Jesus, amen.